Every once in a while, I have the immense privilege of preaching on a Sunday morning. And this morning, I get to talk about the greatest message that there is. I get to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But first, does anybody know what Taylor Swift fans are called? And not just like ordinary fans, I mean serious fans of Taylor Swift. What are they called? Okay, yeah, that's pretty common knowledge. Um, So I I confess, I am not a Swifty. If I was, I would confess it to you. But uh, a few months ago, I was hanging out with some Taylor Swift fans, and I've sometimes wondered why she resonates with so many people. And so I took this opportunity to ask these Taylor Swift fans to explain to me why is she so popular? Like, what is it about her music that is so appealing? Why is she so adored by so many people? And when I asked the question, I didn't get a lackluster response. The gospel of Taylor Swift was preached to me. And it was, and it was preached to me with great enthusiasm. And we all have those things in our lives that we're knowledgeable about, that we're excited about, that we enjoy talking about. We jump at the opportunity to discuss with others. And that's not necessarily bad, unless, of course, those things occupy a greater place in our hearts and minds than God does or than the gospel does. And so to my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, imagine somebody in your life who is an unbeliever, a, f- a friend or a family member or a coworker or a classmate. Imagine that this person approaches you and says, hey, you're a Christian, right? I was watching a TV show and I heard the word gospel mentioned, and I, I know it's like a religious word, but I don't know what it means can you explain it to me? What would you say? Don't, an- don't answer out loud, but just think, how would you respond to that question, what is the gospel? The word itself simply means good news. Gospel means good news, and sometimes even in non-religious settings, it's used in that generic sense. But for Christians, the gospel is a specific message of good news. And my hope is that if any one of us were asked to explain what the gospel is, we would not only be prepared to explain it clearly at any moment, but we would also be enthusiastic to explain it if given the opportunity. So again, if you were asked, what is the gospel, would your explanation, and not only your explanation, but your expressions, your demeanor, would they properly convey that this is the most significant message for people to understand and to embrace? Because our response to the gospel, as we'll see this morning, has eternal consequences. It has eternal consequences. Our response will secure for us either unimaginable glory or unspeakable horror. And so this morning we're going to consider the answer to the question, what is 
the gospel and we'll find the answer in what is probably the, the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair near you, and you'll find John 3.16 on page 835. And I know most of you, maybe, maybe most of you, hopefully most of you have already memorized John, John 3.16, but eventually we'll look at other verses in the surrounding context as well, so you'll be helped to have your Bible open. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 3, verse 16, says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Martin Luther called this verse the gospel in miniature. Many others have called it the gospel in a nutshell because all of the essential pieces of the gospel message are in this verse. If you've been around this this church for any length of time, you may have heard the gospel summarized into four parts, God, man, Christ, and response. John 3.16 contains each of these essential parts, and so We're just going to use this as our outline this morning because God is in this verse presented as the loving giver. Man or mankind is also in this verse as the perishing world or the recipients of God's gift. Christ is in this verse as the gift. And then how we must respond is also in this verse. We we must receive the gift by believing And then finally, I have a a main idea that ties it all together, which, if I'm honest, is really just a restatement of John 3.16. In love, God gave his best gift to secure eternal life for his perishing people. And as we begin, I'm, I'm sure there are many things that are weighing on your mind, even now, important things, troubling things, or maybe just trivial things, but I would encourage you to set those things aside with the Lord's help because nothing can be more important, nothing can be more urgent or more relevant in your life and in my life than what God has to say about the subjects contained in this verse. John 3.16 contains the greatest realities in the universe. This isn't just like a beginner's verse for for Christians who have just begun to believe. These aren't just the fundamentals that we learn and then we move on to bigger and better things. There aren't bigger and better things than what we see in this verse. These truths are the Mount Everest of the Christian life. The gospel message is not of secondary importance or tertiary importance. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's of first importance. The gospel is the source of our hope. It's the source of our peace. It's the source of our joy. The gospel motivates our obedience. The gospel fuels our worship. And those who embrace the truths that we find in this verse will spend eternity marveling at the love of God that we see most clearly demonstrated in the gift of his son. 
And so point number one, who is God? Who is God? Sadly, when we use the word God in many conversations, the image that comes into most people's minds probably isn't the God of the Bible. Even sadder, according to many recent polls, even among professing Christians, there's a significant lack of understanding of who God is and what he's like. Many people perceive God more as like a Santa Claus than as the God of the Bible. They picture a kind old man in the sky who rewards good behavior and is, you know, mildly disapproves of bad behavior. But as long as we're halfway decent people, in the end, he'll sweep all our bad deeds under the rug and welcome everyone into heaven. You know, unless your name is Hitler or Stalin. There's always a few exceptions there. But this is tragic because this isn't who God is. And if someone doesn't understand who God is, then the gospel won't make sense. And so as John 3.16 begins with, for God, we need to think about at least a few truths about who God is. And so there's, there's a lot that, be could, that could be said about God, way more than we have time to cover this morning. But for our purposes, we're going to briefly focus on just a handful of truths about God. So first, we'll consider God as the good creator. God as the good creator, which I know isn't explicitly mentioned in our text, but it is something that is essential to understand whenever we think about or talk about God. He is the good creator. And after that, we'll look at his love, which is explicitly mentioned in the text. And then finally, we'll consider his justice, which is also found in John 3.16 in that word, perish. Without a proper understanding of God's justice, we'll never fully appreciate his love. And so we'll begin with God as the good creator. Because this is where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created God is the only being who was not created. In John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus says of the Father that he has life in himself. He is the uncreated creator. Everything that exists, other than God, exists because God made it exist. We exist because he made us exist. He is the source and the giver of life. And just as the creator of uh, an invention might obtain the rights or the patent to that invention, so God, as the creator and owner of all things, he owns the right to our lives. We're accountable to him. Most people like the idea of human rights. And when we consider human rights on a horizontal level, as it relates to the relationship between humans, like rights are generally a good thing. But in an ultimate sense, we don't have any rights because we don't own ourselves. We belong to God and he owns the patent to humanity. And it's a patent that does not expire. It's also worth noting that God is a good creator. He's good. In Genesis 1, after each day of creation, we're told that it was good. And then finally, after God had finished making the world and everything in it, 
It says in Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything was very good because the creator is very good. The goodness in creation flows from God's goodness. He is the giver of all good things. But when we look at the world today, it's obvious that everything is not so good. And so what happened? What went wrong? Well, we'll get there right after we consider his love. Love is the one attribute that is explicitly mentioned in John 3.16, for God so loved. And this is a truth that the Bible affirms everywhere. For example, in Exodus 34, God says of himself that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. In the book of Psalms, more than once, we're told to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. In 1 John chapter 4, we're told that God is love. And most people are okay with this attribute of God. Like according to a poll taken a handful of years ago, like almost everyone who believes in a God or some sort of higher power believes that God or this higher power is loving. But the same poll found that many people who believe in a loving God did not believe in a God who judges people for the way they live their lives. And this really shouldn't surprise us because we live in a world that defines love much differently than the Bible defines love. The popular cultural conception of love is that if you love me, you would never judge my lifestyle choices. For you to love me, you have to accept me for who I am and don't try to change me. Or it turns love into merely an emotion, something that you can't really control. You can fall in love or you can fall out of love. It's kind of unpredictable. And while love in the Bible isn't empty of emotion, this just isn't a picture of the love that we see in the Bible. Love in the Bible means a willingness to do what is best for someone else, even if it costs you something. It means giving up of yourself, making a sacrifice for the good of others, which is exactly what we see God doing in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His love toward us was costly. John Stott says of this kind of agape love that it is self-sacrifice. It is the seeking of another's positive good at one's own cost. And a greater self-giving than God's gift of his son, there has never been, nor could be. But before we can begin to grasp just how great and just how costly the gift of God's son was and is, we need to first consider his justice. As the creator and owner of all things, God has the right to make rules for the people that he created. 
And because he is good, we know that his rules or his laws are also good. And because God is just, we can be sure that he always does what is right. God always does what is right. Earlier, I quoted from Exodus 34, where the Lord tells Moses that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Because God is just, he will by no means clear the guilty. This means that God won't look at somebody who is guilty of breaking his law and say, I see that you're guilty, but I'll just let it slide. That would be unjust. The justice of God demands that the guilty perish. The soul that sins must die. The wages of sin is death. And this is a problem for us because we're all guilty of breaking God's law. We're all guilty of sin. And so do you feel the tension in this text? It almost seems to be saying contrary things. On the one hand, God says, I forgive sin. But on the other hand, he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. If God forgives a guilty person's sin, where is the justice? But if he's going to execute justice, how can there be forgiveness? Like there's a tension here. And the people of God would live in that tension until the Son of God was given. And we're going to live in that tension for another 10 minutes or so because we're not to that part of the sermon yet. But we have made it to point number two, man, the recipients. Who are we? Who are we? All of humanity is included in that word, world, for God so loved the world. This isn't a reference to the planet Earth. It refers to the inhabitants of the Earth. God, as the good creator, he loves the people that he has made, all the people that he has made. And this might not sound like a shocking statement to us, but it would have been to a first century Jew who likely assumed that God only loved the Jewish people, or at least faithful, law-abiding people. But before we roll our eyes at their self-righteous attitude, we should consider our own attitude toward the world. We too can be quick to assume that God must love us. Like we're moral, upright, hardworking, law-abiding citizens, faithful church attenders, and the list could go on. Of course, God loves us, but those who belong to the wrong political party, those who affirm immoral lifestyles, those who maybe just live in the wrong country, we can view certain people, groups, or individuals as being outside the scope of God's love. And we can start to view them as being less than, as being below us. And we can develop a mindset of self-righteous entitlement where we think God loves us because we're just so lovable. 
But John 3.16 and the following verses teach something very different. That, al- that although God does love the world, everyone in the world, the world has not loved him. And his love for the world is not because the world is lovable, but because he is love. According to John 3.16, all people are destined to perish. The religious and the irreligious, the moral and the immoral, every single person deserves to perish. But why? Why does everyone deserve to perish and what does it mean to perish? Look again to John chapter 3. We'll read verse 17 and the verses following. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him, does not believe, is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. So notice that phrase in verse 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. So John chapter 3 begins with a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And in that conversation, Jesus stresses our need of a new birth. He says in verse 7, you must be born again. He's referring to a spiritual birth. And we need this new birth because we're not naturally born believing in God. We're not naturally born believing in the Son of God. And because we don't believe, verse 18 says that we're condemned And it only gets worse in 19 and 20. These verses are true of everyone who is outside of Christ. We love the darkness rather than the light because our works are evil. By nature, we hate the light because we do wicked things and we don't want to be exposed. And when we think about who we are in relation to who God is as the good creator, and loving judge, we know it won't go well for us because we're not good. We've broken his law. We've essentially spit in his face by rejecting him as God, rejecting his authority, and setting ourselves up as our own gods. We're guilty of all these things. And the last thing that a convicted criminal wants when he goes before a judge for sentencing is for that judge to be good and just. The convicted criminal hopes for an unjust judge, a judge who can be bribed, a judge who doesn't care about justice, a judge who is willing to turn a blind eye to the law. And we may secretly hope that we can bribe God by sprinkling some good deeds into our lives. We may secretly hope that God, God will judge on a curve or that if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, he'll ignore our shortcomings. 
But the Bible is clear that those who have rebelled against God, everything we do, everything we think, everything we say is done in rebellion against him. None is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. And so by nature, we stand before God as condemned people. And rightly so, because God is good and just. He has passed sentence on the world and rightly determined that we deserve to perish. And that word perish is a weighty and terrifying word. There's a pastor who who tells the story of a time that he conducted a funeral for a man at his church um, and the funeral home was responsible for printing the, the brochure for the funeral and on it, they printed the verse John 3.16, which is great, except for the fact that they left out some important words. Their edited version of John 3.16, and you might want to follow along so you can catch their omission, they, they wrote, they printed, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. They cut out the reference to perishing. And many of us, I know, may be tempted to cut out or to minimize this part of the gospel message. And we may even try to justify it by thinking, I'm sharing the gospel. And gospel means good news. And this idea of perishing, that's not good news. But again, if we don't rightly understand who God is, if we don't understand what we deserve as those who have sinned against him, if we don't understand the bad news, then the, then the gospel, the good news, won't make sense. And by minimizing or omitting the bad news, we may actually be preventing people from embracing the good news. And so what does it mean to perish? And I won't sugarcoat it. The word perish is synonymous with the word hell. The word hell, it doesn't appear in John's gospel, but perish here represents the same terrifying reality of eternal punishment. In John 3.16, perishing is contrasted with eternal life, and both are eternal in duration. And it's perhaps most clearly stated in Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus says that one day he will divide all people into two groups, the righteous and the unrighteous. Of the unrighteous, he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If you were to flip over in in John, just a page or two, in in chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, And he, God, has given to him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life. Of judgment. Jesus came the first time to provide a way to save us, but he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Greg Gilbert, 
in his book, What is the Gospel?, which I highly recommend, he says that the Bible teaches that the final destiny for unrepentant, unbelieving sinners is a place of eternal conscious torment called hell. And he encourages Christians not to try to explain it in a way that makes it more tolerable or less horrific than it is. And we don't talk about this topic because we enjoy it. We shouldn't. We talk about it because over and over and over it's mentioned in the Bible, and this is God's word to us. It's his loving warning to the world. So judgment is mentioned in verse 19. Condemnation is mentioned in 18. Perishing in John 3.16. And if you were to look at the last verse of chapter 3, verse 36, John ties it all together by saying, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so when we think about our need to be saved, we have to ask the question, saved from what? Or better, saved from who? There are verses in the Bible that talk about our need to be saved from our sins, but ultimately, we need to be saved from God because he's the one that we've sinned against. He is the good creator and the loving judge who we who we've offended, we've rejected. And John chapter 3, the same chapter that contains many people's favorite verse about the love of God, also contains a verse about the wrath of God. And his love and his wrath, they're not at odds with one another. Do you ever watch a news story or read an article about some atrocity happening in the world? Humans being trafficked for nefarious purposes or children being abused? Like things like these, don't you feel anger rising up within you when you hear about these things? Because you should. If you don't feel at least some anger, it's because you don't love. You don't care as you should. Our love and our anger aren't at odds. Our love for people and our desire for justice are not in conflict. And so we have in John 3.16 a God who loves the world, but who has also condemned the world to perish. And so we're right back to that tension How can we experience the love of God without undermining the justice of God? And the answer is through the gift of God. It's only in the person of Jesus Christ that we see that tension resolved. And so point number three, Christ, the gift of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So first we'll consider who the Son is, and then we'll consider what it means that he was given. So Jesus is called the Son of God because he has the same essential nature as God. Or to state it clearly, he is God. The Son of God 
is God the Son? And of course, this gets into the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity. In the Bible, we see God as three, yet one. And I won't try to explain it, uh, but, but here's the definition. God eternally exists as one essence or one being in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of whom are fully God, yet there is only one God. John begins his book by giving us a glimpse into the nature of God when he says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word who is said to be both with God and to be God is a reference to Jesus, who is also the only Son of God from John 3.16. And it's important to recognize who the Son of God is so that we can fully appreciate the immensity of what it means that he was given to this sinful world. And so what does it mean that the Son of God was given? Notice it's in the past tense. For God so loved the world that he gave. So in one sense, we just celebrated the giving of God's Son on Christmas. And God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ is certainly included in this giving, but ultimately, this giving of the Son of God points us to the cross. In the book of Numbers, you don't need to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 21, God had been good to the people of Israel. He had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. He had repeatedly provided food and water for them as they traveled through the wilderness. But the Israelites repeatedly expressed their discontentment. And they repeatedly doubted the Lord's provision for their journey. And in Numbers 21, it says that they spoke against God. They spoke against him. And God sent judgment on them in the form of these snakes or these serpents who, if the people were bit by them, they would die. So the people soon acknowledged that they had sinned and they prayed for salvation from these serpents and their bites. God had no obligation to save them. They were absolutely getting what they deserved, but God is loving. God is patient. God is gracious. And he provided a way for them to be saved from these venomous serpents. And so in Numbers 21, verse 8, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And so this way that God chose to save the people may seem odd. Like he could have just spoken a word and made the serpents go away and, and healed everyone who had been bitten. But instead, he tells Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole. And anyone who had been infected by the poisonous bite, if they trusted in God's cure, they would look to the bronze serpent and they would live. But as is often the case in many of these Old Testament accounts, God was pointing forward. He was giving us a preview 
of a far greater salvation that he would one day provide. And so now back to John chapter 3, in verse 14 and 15, they help us understand what the giving of the Son of God means for us. So in John 3.14, it says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the Israelites in the wilderness, they were told to look at a serpent, which was like a symbol of their sin and the judgment that they deserved. Little did they know that one day, God himself would leave his throne, would be nailed to a pole called a cross, would take our sin upon himself and endure our judgment. The serpent on the pole was a symbol. Jesus on the cross is the reality. The Bible teaches that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, he became sin. He became our sin. So when John 3.16 says that God gave his only son, it means he was given to be sin for us. He was given to be judged on our behalf. He was given to be condemned in our place. He was given to perish. By bearing the full weight, not only of our sin, but of the wrath of God toward our sin. That's the gospel. It's the good news that even though we have, all of us, seriously sinned against a good and righteous God and have become his enemies who deserve eternal death, yet God, in his great love, gives us eternal life through the gift of his Son. Death for Jesus, life for us. And as one pastor has said, it's the Son of God expressing the love of God to save us from the wrath of God so that we could enjoy the presence of God. No greater gift has ever or could ever be given. But as with all gifts, it must be received. Which brings us to point number four. What should be our response to this good news? How do we receive God's gift? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To receive the gift is to believe in the gift. It's to believe in Jesus. Believing is receiving. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when we think about what it means to believe, it's important to remember that this doesn't just mean that we agree with the facts. It doesn't just mean that we affirm the truths that I've 
just stated. Like that's certainly part of it. Like we need to agree with what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he's done. But the devil believes those things about Jesus. But the devil's not a believer in Jesus. And so belief or faith, these are synonymous terms, virtually synonymous, belief, faith, it has to be more than merely intellectual assent. As J.I. Packer has said, faith is not just believing Christian truth, but forsaking self-confidence and man-made hopes to trust wholly in Christ. The essence of biblical faith, the essence of what it means to be a believer is to trust in, is to rely on or to depend on Christ. Believing means abandoning all trust in our own efforts. It means giving up any attempt to save ourselves or to make ourselves right with God. It means acknowledging that we can't save ourselves, that we're helpless apart from him. And so we put our complete trust in the Son of God and what he did for us. And as the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent and lived, so we look to Christ and live. Also, believing is not a one-time occurrence. The word believes, here in John 3.16, whoever believes is in the present tense, which indicates that true belief in the Son of God is a continual entrusting of ourselves to him. Yes, there is a beginning of belief. There is a point in every Christian's life where we believe and we're saved, but the evidence that our faith is real is that it continues. And continuing to trust in Christ from just a very practical standpoint, it looks like listening to him. It means seeking to obey him. Like this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to believe in him, to live according to his will rather than our own, to live as if his way and his word are more trustworthy than any other way or any other word. But we need to wrap things up. Everyone in this room is in John 3.16. We're all there. You're either in this verse as someone who believes in the Son of God and has eternal life, or as someone who refuses to believe and is on the road to destruction. And so to those who are not Christians, and in a room this size, there are sure to be some of you who would not call yourself a believer in the Son of God. So all that, all that talk about hell earlier, I know there are some people who view that as fear-mongering or as manipulative. Maybe you agree, like I would agree, if it wasn't true. But if a person is in danger, it's not manipulative to warn them of the danger. It's the loving and right thing to do. And if you have not believed in Christ, you have a guilty verdict hanging over your head. 
And one day, you will face judgment, and you will have no excuses. You will have no defense. You will have no alibi. You will have no self-justification. Just you and your sin before a righteous God. And you will be condemned to perish forever. And that should be a terrifying thought. But at the same time, it's been well said that heaven isn't a place for those who are afraid of hell. Heaven is a place for those who love God. To put your faith in Christ simply to escape hell, that's not faith. That's just a self-preservation tactic. The person who believes in Christ loves him. The person who believes in Christ longs to be with him. That's what eternal life is. Being with God, being with Christ, knowing him forever. The person who believes in Christ isn't satisfied with any idea of eternal life that doesn't include Christ. So understanding God's wrath may wake us up to the seriousness of our sin, but ultimately it's the love of God. It's the kindness of God. It's the grace of God that moves us to believe in the Son. It's his love that moves us to desire a relationship with him. And how loving must God be to have so orchestrated your life that you would be here this morning to hear this good news. The good news that God sent his son into the world to suffer and die for everyone, for whoever believes. So trust in him today, friends. Trust in him today. Look and live. Uh, To my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, how are you doing when it comes to entrusting every area of your life to Christ? Are there areas of your life that you haven't entrusted to him? Are there areas of your life that you're trying to separate from your relationship with the Lord? So we're about to enter into a new year. And I don't know whether or not you're into making resolutions, but we should always be resolving to trust Christ more. We should always be resolving to encourage one another to trust Christ more. And I thank the Lord that many of you are an encouragement to me to trust trust Christ more. I'm grateful for you. So what is the gospel? My prayer is that our time together this morning has not only increased your understanding of the gospel, but increased your love for the gospel, increased your desire to make the gospel known. God, man, Christ, response. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And God has entrusted this message to his people to share with a perishing world. And so may he help us with boldness 
with patience, with clarity, and with love to share this message with a perishing world. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for demonstrating your love by sending Jesus to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again for us and give, give us the hope that we will rise again and live with him. We, we ask with the disciples in Luke 17 that you would increase our faith. And we ask with the Father in Mark 9 that you would help our unbelief. And we pray that as we grow in our understanding of your love for us, that we would grow in our love for you and for one another. I pray that as we remember how costly the gift of your Son was for us, we would grow in our willingness to give up our own lives for your cause and for the good of others. But Lord, we need your help. And so we ask that you would be at work in us through the Spirit whom you have also given to us. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.